Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the second installment of our elder-led sermon series, Living Hope. For the benefit of those of you who might not know me, my name is George Bennett, and I serve here at Harvest Decatur alongside my wife on the missions team and as small group leaders. I want to begin today by asking a question. Do you believe the greatest threat to the church today comes from outside the church or inside the church? Let me make the question a little more concrete. Who do you believe is a greater threat to the church? A presidential candidate who promises to nominate pro-abortion justices to the Supreme Court? Or a megachurch pastor who preaches a prosperity gospel? Who do you believe is a greater threat to the church? A high school biology teacher who teaches evolution? Or a youth group leader who entices a teenager into a sexual relationship? Who do you believe is a greater threat to the church? An entertainer who undergoes gender reassignment surgery? Or a celebrity pastor who bullies staff behind the scenes? Does the greatest threat to the church today come from outside or inside the church? I've thought a lot about that question over the last couple of years, and I've come to the conclusion that the greatest threat to the church comes from inside the church. If we posit that the mission of the church is to make mature disciples who worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, internal threats can inflict far more damage and create greater barriers to the fulfillment of that mission. My sin nature can do far more harm to the cause of Christ than any politician or bureaucrat. I would submit to you that the Apostle Peter also viewed internal threats as a greater concern. As we will see from the passage we're studying this morning, Peter's prescription for persecuted believers was personal holiness. He focused on the conduct of the Christians, not the conduct of the persecutors. Before we get any further along, let's pray for our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us an opportunity once again to gather publicly to study and learn from your word. Thank you for inspiring Peter to write this letter, and thank you for preserving his letter over the centuries. We know that you meant his letter not only for his first century audience, but also for us today. We trust that you have something to say to us this morning. We pray that you give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, the minds to understand, and the hearts to receive what it is that you are going to tell us. We pray that your word changes us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned earlier, this is the second sermon in our series from 1 Peter called Living Hope. We will be looking at chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. While you're turning there, let me remind you of the setting of 1 Peter. This letter was written by the Apostle Peter, who has been referred to as the Apostle of Hope. Peter was in Rome at the time of writing, and we know from the letter that Silvanus and Mark were with him. Silvanus, or Silas, is mentioned in the New Testament more often as a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. So the fact that he was in Rome with Peter might indicate that this letter was written after Paul was executed, 
or perhaps that Peter and Paul were collaborating in Rome. Either way, the letter was written sometime around the year A.D. 64, during the reign of Emperor Nero. By the time the letter was written, Nero had mandated an official large-scale persecution of Christians in Rome on legal grounds. While this persecution by government decree had not yet spread to provinces outside of Rome, Christians in other parts of the empire faced social and verbal persecution, and it was to those Christians Peter wrote. Peter addressed both Jewish and Gentile background believers in several provinces in what is now modern-day Turkey. These provinces do not include many of the influential population centers, so they were sort of the backwoods of the Roman Empire. Of the five provinces named, we have no record that Peter ever visited any of them. However, we also have no record of Peter's experiences during the 15 or so years between when he took part in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 and when he wrote this letter from Rome. It's possible that Peter was not personally acquainted with any of the churches which received his letter. On the other hand, it's possible that some of those churches were started by individuals who were present at Peter's sermon on Pentecost that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. So Peter wrote to believers whose faith and conduct made them aliens and strangers in a pagan society that was hostile toward them. They were exiles, at least figuratively, if not literally. All of us as Christians are exiles in some sense. Peter reminded them and us that they and we have a living hope in the resurrected Jesus Christ who lives and offers us hope of living with him. If living hope is the theme of the letter, holy living is the goal. Peter spends most of the letter writing about holiness in different contexts. In the passage we're focusing on this morning, Peter is writing about personal holiness. The title of my sermon is the same as the section heading in the ESV Bible, called to be holy. Let's pick up the text at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word therefore is a reference to verses 3 through 12 that Paul Roberts preached on last Sunday. That's the section that defines our living hope and sets the tone for the rest of the letter. Peter is saying, in light of this living hope that we have, certain responses are called for. Our perspective is not to be governed by the persecution we face, but rather by the promise we hold. This promise is a hope grounded in salvation. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, my outline is a little different than usual. We've already talked about the who, what, when, and where of the passage. The rest of the sermon will focus on the how and the why. I'm going to give you four practices that lead to personal holiness and four purposes or four reasons why we should pursue personal holiness. Write this down as the first practice, point 1A. Hopeful Christians prepare. Peter says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. 
These are both participles that are subordinate to the command that follows to set our hope. They're actions that follow from the hope. In other words, our hope is the basis for our behavior. Preparing your minds for action is the language of battle. He's saying, gird the loins of your brain. Someone preparing for action is going to make sure that all the belts and straps are tightened and all the equipment is in place. It's an exercise in focus. We need to be similarly focused on our living hope. Being sober-minded means to not be under the influence of destructive thoughts or false hopes. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whether it's at the second coming of Christ or when we are called home, we have an expectation of meeting the risen Christ, and that expectation should lead us to be alert and sharp. Write this down as the first purpose, point 1B, to prepare for the glory of God. One way or another, all of us will come face to face with Christ, and pursuing holiness is the way to prepare for that moment. And the way we prepare is by focusing our thoughts on the living hope we have, because thoughts precede actions. Actions follow thoughts. Character comes before conduct. Conduct follows character. Commentator Peter Davids puts it this way, and you can read it on the screen. He says, hope is at the, quote, intersection of apocalyptic eschatology with a present-day attitude, end quote. Have you ever noticed for the world, hope is usually a verb, but for Christians, hope is a noun? Worldly people say, I hope such and such happens. And they use the word more or less as a synonym for wish or desire. But Christians can say, we set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. We have an objective hope, not a subjective hope. Our emphasis is on the one who guarantees our hope for us. Peter says, set your hope fully. Again, the emphasis here is more on the object of the hope. Peter isn't saying set 100% of your hope on the grace so much as he is saying set your hope exclusively on the grace and not on anything else. When I was in school, I was a triathlete, by which I mean I was trying really hard to be an athlete. (laughs) One sport that was not high on my list of athletic endeavors was swimming. I took swimming lessons when I was five and didn't get in a pool again until I was 17. I'm a weak swimmer. I could do enough to keep myself alive for a while if I ever fell overboard, but that's about it. God has a sense of humor, I guess, because he gave me a wife whose name means ocean. Daria practically grew up on the beach. In the last 10 years, we have been to quite a few beaches and pools. When I'm in the water, I'm almost always maintaining contact with some solid surface. Either my feet are touching the bottom or my hand is on the side. I rarely fully swim. Sometimes I approach hope the same way as I approach swimming. I don't set my hope fully on Christ. Admittedly, I haven't suffered much in the way of persecution for my faith. 
except maybe a little verbal abuse here and there. Even so, at times, I set my hope on other things, such as my reputation or my own wisdom. It's hard for me to let go and set my hope exclusively on him. But God wants us to trust that he will keep us afloat and deliver us to a safe destination. Let's get back to our passage, looking at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Write this down as the second practice, point 2a. Prepared Christians obey. Prepared Christians obey. Peter addresses his readers as obedient children or children of obedience. His expectation seems to be that since we have been rescued from our former state of ignorance and adopted into the family of God, we will be obedient. Although it's not explicitly stated, it's implied that we as children will obey our Heavenly Father. And we know what we are to obey or how to obey by what God has communicated to us through his written word and by looking to our example of the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings me to point 2B, or the second purpose for pursuing holiness, to obey the word of God. Obedience is the action we are to prepare our minds for, and we prepare by focusing on our living hope. That is, the promise we have of a future with the resurrected Christ. Read with me in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We've talked about holiness a few times already, but we haven't defined what holiness is. When we're talking about the personal holiness of believers, we're talking mostly about conduct or a way of living. But as we noted before, actions follow thoughts, so holiness also involves a mindset. It flows from character. The 19th century preacher J.C. Ryle defined holiness this way. He said, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. A holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. Another way to put it is that holiness is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God the Spirit isn't simply holy because he is God. He is holy because he brings about holiness in us. The Bible gives us some other glimpses of what holiness looks like in a person's life. For example, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 read, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. From the New Testament, we have a passage many of you probably have memorized, Galatians 5, 22, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Peter himself in his second letter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, 
and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy is an interesting word. When it applies to God, it's an all-or-nothing kind of term. It's absolute. God is holy, we are not. Holiness is actually the defining essence of God's character. It was his holiness that demanded sin be paid for. It was his love that moved him to pay the penalty himself. There is no partial holiness with God. Partial holiness would be unholiness. The word holy carries with it a sense of absolute righteousness and purity. God does not tolerate sin and rebellion. When the word holiness applies to children of God, however, we can speak of a process of increasing degrees of holiness. We often use the word sanctification to describe that process or the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a process of purification or holification, if you will. So the command to be holy is a command to be pure, and we become pure by being purified. And you may write that down as our third practice, point 3A, obedient Christians are purified. I put that in the passive voice because purification is something that the Holy Spirit does to us, not something we do ourselves. If justification is by grace through faith and glorification is by grace through faith, it stands to reason that sanctification is also by grace through faith. Even though we can't purify ourselves, we have a role to play in our own sanctification. Watchman Nee described it as an active passivity. We don't simply wait for the Holy Spirit to change us. We read and study and meditate on God's word and we pray and we allow others to hold us accountable. When we do those things, the conditions are ripe for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and lead us to greater levels of obedience and purity. Now, if we're not careful, we can also play a role in preventing our own purification. The Bible warns us not to quench the Holy Spirit or grieve the Holy Spirit. This purification process is a little like pulling weeds. If you look at my yard from a distance, you would probably say it looks okay or even nice. But if you come into the yard and start walking around, you'll start seeing mole damage, crabgrass, and weeds. And if you come and help me when I'm out pulling weeds, you would start noticing less conspicuous weeds as you pull out the more visible ones. And if you don't get the root when you pull out the weed, you can be sure the weed will reappear sooner or later. I'm sure you followed the analogy. We have to be willing to look closely to see the sins that need to be eliminated from our lives, and some of our sins are symptoms of a deeper issue. So what is the purpose or the reason for allowing ourselves to be purified by the Holy Spirit? You may write this down as point 3B, to imitate the holiness of God. We imitate those we most want to be like. So if we want to be like God, we should imitate his holiness. The imitation is not just for the sake of imitation, though. It's also for the sake of preparation to be with God. 
Listen to J.C. Ryle again. Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth. Can you imagine getting to heaven and not enjoying it? Feeling out of place? Let's allow ourselves to be trained and made ready as much as possible while we're here on earth. Holiness clearly has some benefits, but it can also come at a cost. Our decisions to pursue holiness might leave us out of the cultural loop, so to speak. Our decisions to pursue holiness might deprive us of career opportunities or career advancement. By pursuing holiness, we might miss out on some chances to participate in certain events. For example, I mentioned in my sermon a few weeks ago that I'm a runner. Decatur has a showcase road race every year called the Shoreline Classic. Many of you are familiar with it because the course goes right past our church and forces many of us to drive to church from a different direction. Until about 15 years ago, the race was held on a Saturday morning. Due to conflicts with cross-country meets and soccer tournaments and things like that, the race organizers decided to move the race to Sunday morning. After I started attending Harvest, there was no way for me to run in the Shoreline Classic and make it to church, or at least make it to church in a presentable manner. So I made the decision to stop running in the race. I couldn't be in two places at once, and being in church seemed more critical to my pursuit of holiness. I also wanted my actions to accurately reflect my priorities. Or maybe it's more truthful to say I was concerned about what my priorities actually were and I wanted to make sure they were right. Now, I don't say any of that with the intention of judging anyone who chooses to run in the Shoreline Classic. It isn't my place to pass judgment. We have members here at Harvest who run the race with a clear conscience, and that's great. I made the decision I made for me and my walk with God and my conscience. And in the grand scheme of things, it was a pretty small price to pay. The cost of that decision pales in comparison to, say, resigning from a job over an ethical principle. With that said, it did cost me something. You know what, though? God is good, and he has given me and us the chance to support the race and the running community while putting our Christianity into practice. In 2019, our church provided a Gatorade station for the runners. There was no race in 2020 due to the pandemic, but last year we were out there along the road cheering the runners on, and I expect us to be out there again this fall. What I want you to take away is that our holiness can come at a cost to us. We must be willing to give up the things that don't please God, And we must be content for others to think ill of us when we do please God. What is your holiness costing you? Are you willing to pay that price? We talk some about what holiness is. I would be remiss if I didn't spend some time talking about what holiness is not. When the leaders of Adana Baptist Church were here in June... 
Ryan and I led some teaching and training sessions with them in which we covered four characteristics or qualities that leaders should pursue, along with four counterfeits that we can be tempted to pursue but shouldn't. The counterfeit to holiness that we discussed was ministry achievement. By ministry achievements, we meant things that can be measured or quantified. How many sermons I've preached and how many people have heard my sermons? How many years I've led small group and how many people are in my small group? How many mission trips I've taken? What leader posi leadership positions I've held? Items that would go on my church resume. We pointed out that ministry achievement and ministry effectiveness are good, but they can be dangerous. They become dangerous when they blind us to unholiness in other areas of our lives. Even the most effective ministry leaders have a problem if the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in their lives. God is more concerned with our being than with our doing. He is more concerned with our character. Now, it's natural to assume that a pastor wouldn't be able to rack up ministry achievements without having personal holiness, but the assumption isn't valid. And let's face it, we also like the results of ministry achievement, and we don't want to take steps that might curtail them. So churches can find themselves in situations where pastors hide, a pastor hides his sinful character behind his ministry achievements, and the elders stop holding the pastor accountable because they want ministry achievements to continue. That's an extremely dangerous place to be for the pastor, for the elders, and for the church. And it's certainly not holiness. We've covered three practices and three purposes. Let's move on to the fourth. Jump down to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. In this word is the good news that was preached to you. Write this down as point 4A, the fourth practice. Purified Christians love. Purified Christians love. The corresponding purpose, or point 4B, is that we pursue holiness to produce the love of God. Now, obviously, God's love exists whether we show it or not. What I mean is our purification enables us to love others the way God loves them. It's a sacrificial love that puts their interests ahead of our own. So the degree to which we love other Christians is a measure of our holiness. The holier we are, the better we will love others. The more we love our Christian brothers and sisters, the greater our holiness is. Are you growing in your love for other Christians? If not, then you must ask yourself whether you are growing in holiness. This part of the passage is Peter's segue into the rest of the book. He's been discussing the pursuit of personal holiness as the proper consequence of the living hope we have and the proper response to the persecution we face. 
Here he is showing how holiness should flow into love for others. In the coming chapters, he will shift his focus to holiness in our conduct, in our various relationships, whether with believers or non-believers. So stay tuned. I've given you four practices and four purposes for pursuing holiness. But there is actually a fifth purpose that I skipped over. Let's go back to verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The fifth purpose is to escape the wrath of God. Only Christians can call God Father. In fact, J.I. Packer defined Christians as people who can call God Father. One of the other defining marks of Christians is that the Holy Spirit begins dwelling in us the moment we are born again. And as we have already talked about, the work of the Holy Spirit is to make us holy. Purification or sanctification is the only certain evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. So if you cannot look back and see purification that has taken place in your life, you might need to ask yourself if you are born again. Hebrews 12:14 says, "Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." Holiness is necessary to be able to go to heaven and see the Lord. I want to be clear, it's not a self-generated holiness that earns a spot in heaven. It's a holiness generated by the Holy Spirit who is dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you if you are born again. And the Bible assumes that the Holy Spirit will be working in those he lives in and producing holiness and thought and action. Therefore, Hebrews 12.14 is saying that the Holy Spirit is necessary to be able to see the Lord. Do you want to go to heaven? Does the Holy Spirit live inside you? Are you born again? If you are not born again, I would urge you to not let another day go by. To be born again, you need to admit to God that you are sinful and guilty before him. You need to believe that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sinfulness and rose from the dead to confirm that the penalty had been paid. And you need to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You simply trust him to save you from your sins. Now, if you did put your trust in Christ today, I would be encouraged if you tell me about it after the service. I began today by asking you a question. It's now time for more questions. But please know that as I ask these questions of you, I am asking them of myself as well. Have you set your hope fully on Christ? Are you holy? Are you growing in holiness? Do you feel the importance of holiness as much as you should? Is your holiness costing you anything? Are you willing to give up every habit and practice that is wrong in God's sight? 
Are you shunning every known sin and obeying every known commandment? Are there any sins you have grown to tolerate in your life that you have come to peace with? Do you think you are too old to change or too young to worry about changing? Do you think you are immune from committing any sin? Are you growing in your love for other Christians? Are you growing in your love for other Christians who vote differently than you do? Do you spend more time and mental energy on criticizing the sins of others than confessing your own? Do you think your sins are less evil than the sins of others? Psalm 10 is an imprecatory psalm, meaning it was written against the enemy of God and God's people. Verse 7 reads, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. This verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.14. But in Romans 3, Paul is making the case that no one is righteous and everyone is without excuse. In other words, Paul is imprecating all people. Therefore, according to the Apostle Paul, whenever we sin, we are acting just like the enemies of God. G.K. Chesterton was an author, art and literary critic, and Christian apologist in Great Britain in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In some respects, he was C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis was C.S. Lewis. A story is told about Chesterton that the Times of London asked a number of famous authors to answer the question, what's wrong with the world today? Chesterton submitted the response, I am. His answer was witty, but it also captured the biblical idea that we all have a sin nature and all sin is lethal. Would you have answered the question the same way Chesterton did? One of Chesterton's most famous books is titled Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right doctrines or right beliefs, so it's a reference to correct knowledge or correct thinking. There is a similar word, orthopraxy, which means right practices, so it's a reference to correct actions or correct behavior. I want to mention a third related word that I would bet is unfamiliar to most of you. It was unfamiliar to me until about nine months ago. The word is orthocardia, and it means right heart. It's a reference to correct attitudes or correct motives. How are you doing with that? Do you have orthocardia? Do you have holy attitudes and motives? One of the most formative experiences of my life happened when I was in high school. Between my junior and senior years, our German club took a trip to Germany. Our trip included a visit to the Dachau concentration camp, which had been converted into a museum. I distinctly remember two moments from that visit. One was in the visitor center where I saw a picture of an inmate of the camp who looked like a friend of mine. The second was when we were leaving and I looked at the guard tower 
and realized that if I had been born 50 years earlier in Germany, I probably would have been a Nazi, and I could easily have been stationed in that guard tower. At that moment, I knew I was capable of the worst kind of evil, but for the grace of God. That realization terrified me at the time, but I'm thankful for it now because it helped prepare me to respond positively when I heard the gospel. After I finished school and had been a Christian for several years, I used to think that the world would be a better place if everyone were like me. I now know, however, if that were the case, that the world would be filled with people who lie, who covet, who sometimes are passive when action is called for, who often pursue their own comfort, who are self-centered, who can be stubborn, who become frustrated, resentful, and irritable, who fear man. What would the world be like if everyone were like you? It shouldn't surprise us when the world acts like the world. We have no reason to expect the world to act like the church. We have every reason, though, to expect the church to act like the church and not like the world. It's hard to persuade the world to turn and follow us if we aren't leading in the right direction. These reflections could be cause for despair if not for our living hope. Read with me verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Holiness might cost us something, but it costs God everything, namely the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But God the Father raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory, so now our sins have been forgiven, and we have an active promise in the word given to us by the Holy Spirit that we too will live in heaven for all eternity. Because we have this living hope, we can and should pursue holiness. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you again that our hope lives. Thank you that you are holy. Thank you for sending your son to die to pay the penalty for our sins and sinfulness. Thank you for raising him from the dead and seating him at your right hand. Thank you for promising an eternity with you to all of us who know you and have placed our faith in your son. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to live in us and to do the work of making us holy. On behalf of everyone within the sound of my voice, I pray that we want to be holy or at least that we want to want to be holy. I pray you increase our understanding of the vileness of our sin. I pray you increase our discomfort over our sin. I pray you increase our desire for holiness. 
I pray you give us the courage and the willingness to pay the costs we have to pay to become holy. Lord Jesus, you went to prepare a place for us. Now prepare us for that place, we pray. God, the Holy Spirit, do the work in us that you were sent to do. Create in us clean hearts and renew right spirits within us. Focus our attention on the living hope we have and protect us from diverting our attention to other things. May we not interfere with your work. It's in Jesus Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen.